Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Chris Bustamante to our show. Dr. Bustamante is the Executive Director of the Arizona Community College Coordinating Council, AC4, in Temple, Arizona. Hi, Chris. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Oh, it's uh, great to be with you, Dave. So can you talk about AC4 and why community colleges in Arizona join your organization? Well, the, the primary reason that they join our organization is that if, so that we have some statewide coordination. We don't have a state board in Arizona anymore. So we have 10 organized community college districts. And the only way they could come together would be through some association to do so. So this is a, a dues member organization um, that uh, allows them to do some primary things that are really important for them as a statewide entity to ensure that they advocate uh, for the uh, organization to uh, ensure that they're coordinating their workforce development efforts whenever possible um, or some of their transfer efforts with the universities, et cetera. And the only way to do that is if they're together on these things. And there's some other things they want to do, you know, in promoting some of their goals relative to um, ensuring that they uh, do all they can to um, encourage the leadership within the community colleges and uh, ensure that we're connected to our stakeholders in our community so that they don't have to come to us individually uh, rather than, you know, there sometimes where it's just easier to come to one entity like AC4 or myself uh, to give me the opportunity to coordinate it with the CEOs uh, of Arizona's community colleges together and to have more impact that way. And that's what we're really looking for, more impact relative to advocacy, relative to collaboration, relative to coordination, those kinds of things. But it is really different in Arizona in that we don't have a higher uh, education board that we report to. So we report straight to our own district governing boards that are elected, uh, as well as the legislature and nothing really in between. Okay. So, so when you talk about advocacy, what, what are you, what's, what's your strongest advocates right now? Well, what we're, what we're advocating for right now really is uh, to ensure that we have the adequate funding to do the work that we need to do. And the state in uh, here in Arizona has not invested very much in its higher ed institutions. And so it's just been something they haven't done, especially recently. Uh, really when we needed the most. For example, the urban districts where it's in uh, Tucson and the uh, Phoenix area, uh, Phoenix is the Maricopa system. And then in uh, Tucson, there's the Pima system that represents over 70% of all of the enrollments for community colleges in Arizona that don't receive any operational funding from the state at all or capital funding, zero. And they only receive categorical funding for workforce development initiatives or STEM uh, initiatives, those kinds of things, but nothing that is ongoing for very long or that they, they're committed to long-term, the legislature. Um, that's different for the rurals where they, they believe that their tax valuations are lower. We do have 
uh, tax revenues too. And that's why in the urban areas, they think that we're well enough funded. But, you know, that's not the way the system was set up. Uh, originally, it was uh, envisioned that it would be the state would uh, contribute a third, the local taxpayers would contribute a third, and then the students would contribute a third through tuition and fees. But the state really hasn't owned up to its uh, its part. So we're asking them to do that. We have some expenditure limitation, a little bit of a crisis in Arizona where uh, um, the legislature set limits on how much you could expend relative to local taxpayer um, uh, revenues and other revenues that you have uh, within community colleges. And since we've had a stark decline in enrollment uh, during the pandemic, uh, that has caused some issues because enrollment is one of the factors, uh, our FTE uh, for what we call FTSE full-time student equivalent, as well as inflationary factors that determine what that expenditure limitation is. So that has been going down as enrollment has been going down, but our needs are great too. So, uh, you know, even if we were to get more money in some places, we wouldn't be able to really expend it. So we're looking for some, a longer term uh, remedy to that. And we're looking for the opportunity to receive funding for shorter term uh, workforce uh, programs rather than longer term, right? You know, the traditional Mm -hmm. ones. So simply because we know that, We'll draw more students in if we can get them a job faster in shorter term uh, programs that traditionally uh, don't fall within that Carnegie unit, you know, that seat time. Uh, right. It's actually a shorter period of time that we would like the legislature to fund. But, you know, that's kind of new for the legislature to think about. So we're, we're struggling with how we ensure that, um, you know, we somehow engage them in helping us to get those funded. If not them, the federal government, surely. Uh, through its recovery efforts and funding that they're uh, providing through the Department of Labor. And we think that that's going to expand over time. So those kinds of things are what we're really advocating for and ensuring that we stay together. Sure. That makes sense. You know, I I sit here and I'm looking at my notes as far as, you know, as you guys move forward on workforce training and university transfer and early college and everything else, Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's uh, I didn't recognize there's really no funding from the state that can really assist you. So they, everybody has to kind of pull together to have that happen and to come to yeah, go. With the exception of the rural districts, they right. are uh, being funded, um, but, but certainly not to the degree they were once funded. So that, you know, that, that deserves some improvement there too. Okay. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about you and the path that led you to become the executive director. Well, how early do you want me to start, Dave? <laughs> well, you know, see, to be honest, uh, uh, you know, like any good podcast host, as I start doing my research on you, I'm, I think you have an interesting, interesting history, you know, first generation, the whole bit. So I, if, if you wouldn't mind, I, I'd like for you to start from the beginning. Okay. No, I don't mind that at all. Um, I was uh, raised in a, a rural community, a mining town uh, outside of Tucson, probably about uh, 40 miles outside of Tucson near Marana, Arizona. So the public school system was in Marana, which was about 20 miles away from uh, the mining town I grew up in. And I'm uh, a descendant from a long line of miners, uh, in particular copper miners. And it was a copper mine where um, they had a, a town with 300 families that I grew up there until I was 16 when the mine um, shut down for a while, but certainly they shut down the community. But um, I'm one of seven kids and the only ones who have uh, ever gone to uh, 
university and graduated from university, ended up getting three degrees, you know, a bachelor's, a master's and a doctorate. But I was certainly a first generation college student and uh, went to Pima Community College when I was uh, out of uh, high school. I went to Marana Public Schools, uh, first grade through 12. Um, did well there, but you know, like a lot of schools, you think you've done well in a school until you get to college, you realize how much you don't know and how much you have to, to uh, there is some level of remediation there you've got to take care of, especially in math and English. So I did that. And then um, I was a commuter kid. I didn't get that residential experience that a lot of kids get now or did then. And so I had to go to work, at least work 30 hours a week. So I always, uh, you know, when I became a president of a college, I'll talk about that later, um, always try to remember the plight of our students that way. And, you know, when they're trying to, they're struggling uh, to go to school part-time, work, help their families. Um, some have families of their own and uh, to keep going. So I struggled like every other student in terms of, you know, is this really for me? Um, you know, am I going to graduate from college? Do I really have everything it, it takes to really be successful in college? And, um, but eventually I got there and transferred to the uh, University of Arizona as a transfer student from Pima Community College and majored in uh, business administration and finance because I would, not that I loved it. It was just because I thought it would get me a good job somewhere in banking or finance or something like that. And then in 83, when I graduated, it was, uh, there was a, a terrible recession. And so it took a whole other year before I uh, really could um, uh, get a, a job that, um, you know, was worthy of a college degree. And I worked, I went to work for Co uh, Kellogg Corporation. Mm -hmm. And uh, they asked me the question, what's your favorite cereal? And I said, uh, Cheerios. And they said, that's not one of our products. It's actually uh, General Mills product. So, uh, and I thought I'd blown the interview by then, but I think they, they mm. thought it was so comedic that they, they said, you know, uh, you might be some fun. Let's, let's carry this interview a little further and see whether or not you'll do better on the other questions. And I did, and they ended up hiring me. And uh, one thing I found out about myself early on in my career, as you know, we all kind of as we transition our career and we experience is that I didn't really have that human connection that I really wanted. I didn't get so excited about selling a truckload of cereal as others were excited for me about. So I, I decided, I'm not sure this is for me. And then there was a guy who I had uh, tutored English with um, at Pima Community College like eight years before um, while I was at uh, Kellogg who called my mother. He remembered that I lived in Marana and said, if he's the same guy I know, I knew eight years ago, I have the perfect job for him. And sure enough, um, I, I called him up, met with him, and uh, he was at the Arizona legislature and said there was a research, uh, education research job there that I'd be perfect for in working with 26 members of the House of Representatives, uh, even being green and learning that. But that changed the trajectory of my career because uh, I was always from then on involved in politics and it connected me to chancellors and presidents and superintendents and, you know, all it was kind of the center of power. So uh, I did that for about three or four years and then got a job with the, uh, the largest uh, school system in uh, certainly the urban area of Phoenix, a high school district with 25,000 students being their government relations uh, representative. And I did that and grew in that job and became one of their cabinet members. And then 
thought I wanted to go to the Harvard Business School, went there, was another fork in the road in my life and determined that, you know, this isn't working out. It's not the best thing for me. I'm not sure I want this anymore. While it's going 100 miles an hour, you don't have much time to think about it. So I left. And I remember one of my classmates writing me a card that said something like, uh, walk all the way home. Do you realize that only one out of 800 applicants get into the Harvard Business School? And I don't regret it now because it was, um, you know, a decision that I, I made that I, you know, really made from my heart and sure. my gut. And uh, I think it was the right thing. But everybody, you know, on their leadership path makes those kinds of decisions. Right. And that was a key one for me. So then I, I got this job going back to the Maricopa Community Colleges as a, an associate director of government relations. Spent 12 years doing that, all in all in Arizona. I spent 20 consecutive years either as a staff person or as a lobbyist in government affairs, and then found myself walking those presidents and chancellors around and thinking, wow, I wonder what it takes to do that job because I don't know, you know, I think I want to do something for the next 20 years of my life. And so I asked, you know, a few of them to be my mentors and they encouraged me to get my master's and my doctorate. And they had a professional growth program that paid for it. And then I enrolled myself in leadership programs as they told me I should and started following, uh, you know, recommendations for the path that they thought would be good for me. And I did that, but it was still a tough transition from the time I got my doctorate to the time I actually got to a college campus it was five years. Um, only because people see you in a place and they think you're really good at it. They said, you're a good lobbyist. You should, con- some said right. you should continue to do that. And uh, I kept thinking, you know, I know, I know what I want to do, so- that I want to do something different. And I did. So there was a president who gave me an opportunity at Rio Salado College, Dr. Linda Thor. And uh, we actually kind of shook on, on uh, the opportunity because what we said was I would do my very best for the college and she would do her very best to ensure that I had the um, experiences that I was looking for in a growth leadership um, path. Um, and sure enough, uh, I delivered on, on doing a good job and they delivered on giving me uh, experiences as a, first as a dean, then a senior associate dean of academic affairs then a vice president of community development and student services, then the interim president, and then the president of Rio Salado College, which is the largest college in the Maricopa Community College system in the Phoenix metro area, um, with serving about 50,000 students. Um, And I can tell you more about that, but um, that was a wonderful experience that really opened my eyes uh, to what is possible for uh, delivering higher education for all students, not just some students. Right. You know, I, I like, the, there's a couple of parts I really like. Uh, I always think, and I have friends that when they step away from something, they second guess themselves. And it <laughs> seems like you stepping away from Harvard, and I know I'm probably going to get a call on this, but you know, really uh, benefited you down the road to, to put you on the path where you really should be. Because yeah. you you ended up at this this phenomenal college that um, until until we agreed to do the interview a couple of months ago, I didn't really know it anything about it, which is, you know, the Rio Salado College, which is the nation's largest online community college. I mean, uh, I was I was uh, 
stalking you watching some YouTube videos. And, you know, I think these were like 2015 and you were talking about 30,000 students and 48 start dates per year. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, that can't be right until I saw it in an article. And it's like, oh my gosh, how do you do 48 start dates per year? You had your own LMS. Mm-hmm. And, and this was way back when. So as everybody's now moving toward online, it was obvious mm-hmm. you had to develop some really good partnerships to get this to all work. So uh, can you talk about your time there at the college and how you built the partnerships and how you saw your vision come together for these things? Sure. And, uh, you know, there were some pioneers who came before me and then I took that college and then built on that. But certainly the pioneering uh, that went on and that we built on had to do with what they termed originally when they established the college in 1978, which was the college without walls. Right. And so that really opened up the vision for something like an online college, right? Initially it was um, doing it uh, via mail, you know, right. via paper back and forth. It could be, um, you know, at many locations throughout the community rather than one place. Um, flexible, um, mainly serving a lot of adult students, et cetera. And so what it, what it was founded on was whatever traditional faculty didn't want to do in the system, it was given to Rio Salado. So that was working with the mm-hmm. military student, that was working with prisoners, was working with ABE, GED students, all of these tra- non-traditional learners. And little did people know that they would become you know, the majority uh, over time, the non-traditional learner. And that kind of got us into trouble later because they thought we were taking their students, but we really weren't. We were just serving students who hadn't been served before. Sure. And, um, you know, at one time, I think it was in, I, I joined the college in uh, 2004. Uh, so it was uh, probably... 2000, and I'm, I'm kind of getting my, my years a little twisted here, but I think it was, yeah, 2006 when we had like 70,000 students enrolled at Rio Salado College. So that just gives you the, the sense of the elasticity of the institution when you're doing online learning, that that was a great demand. And then they moved back now to about serving about 50,000 students with about 30,000 online. So they do in-person as well as uh, online because you're serving non-traditional learners in different formats. And some of them included, you know, being the community college of the Air Force at Luke Air Force Base or, you know, having seven to 8,000 ABE, GED learners in community centers throughout um, the community in 90, 200 square mile county, um, that kind of thing. So it, uh, but what it really lent itself to was there were, very few that were innovating in the online space, except for the University of Phoenix, which interestingly enough was just across the freeway from us, um, as well as us. And in Arizona, you know, that just really does uh, leave room for a lot of innovation. One thing that the legislature doesn't do is fund us well, but the other thing they do do is they kind of, they, they don't regulate us um, uh, strictly. Uh, and I think that's a good thing in terms of for innovation, allowing us to do the work. All of Title 15 for K-12 community colleges and universities is probably about three inches thick. That's it. 
And that gives you a sense of, of the kind of innovation that goes on. So now you see, you know, the number one innovation university in the country is Arizona State, you know, because they, they just, and they have something like 150,000 students now. And they, they, uh, the president has a belief, Michael Crow, that you can grow an institution and still retain quality and, and, and serve more students. And so we always had that vision that um, you can serve more students who need you most all those students that, that don't have access to traditional education and those who do, do to, who need a different modality, not all the time, it may be some of the time to get them where they need to go and keep them keep uh, themselves on their uh, academic path. And that's what we found that as we kept the focus on the student that we designed everything for the student rather than for the institution that we found that they needed great flexibility. So we designed the system that way so that you had over 40 start dates a year, as you were saying, um, that you could start over 600 courses every Monday. Um, <laughs> you know, and you had 22, we had 22 residential faculty and over 1500 adjunct faculty. And we taught the world that it could be done and you could retain quality, could give people the access that they needed and then, you know, many of our students would transfer to the university and many university students, uh, even today, um, never leave the campus of Arizona State University and Rio is only two miles west of them. And uh, they transfer credit from Rio back to the university all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we redefined what transfer credit really was too. <laughs> Sometimes so you could transfer credit, be at the institution you're attending, and uh, and do that right, and and uh, get you through some of those lower division credits that wow. you want more attention on or more flexibility with, and to keep you on your path on your degree track so that you don't have to miss a semester just because they're not offering a class that particular semester. A lot of students do that um, because they can't get the class they need when they need it, so they come to us and and do that. So. That's what it's really about. And uh, the Gates Foundation um, really uh, appreciated the fact that we were using technology to be more cost efficient and then uh, that we had scale in mind that we could serve more students. So they started investing in us and we had six Gates funded grants at one time in any at any one time for that's the purposes bad... of doing R&D work. Yeah, no, that's not a bad thing, huh? <laughs> no, no, it really wasn't. And then it, it really earned us a visit from uh, the leadership as well as uh, Bill Gates of the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2014. <clears throat> that uh, was really great because, um, you know, to have him come personally to witness uh, what he had heard was happening at Rio Salado and in Arizona, frankly, with some of the other online institutions. But he went over to the University of Phoenix as well in ASU, but he spent six and a half hours with us. That was the difference. And he met our students and he spent time with our faculty and uh, was really impressed with the work that we were doing because we were doing it so very differently. I remember going up the stairs with him when I met him and he said, so where are the 22? And I said, the 22? And I said, oh, you must be speaking of our faculty. He was really enamored with that, that we could, you know, um, turn the instructional model upside down, that you would have 22 residential faculty and then have all those adjuncts and still be able to deliver what you needed at scale rather than the traditional model. And then to have the HLC, the higher learning 
uh, commission allow us to do it. I don't know that they would be promoting more uh, institutions just like Rio in that because sure. we're so different and so radical. But there is always something to be learned, especially as we went through the pandemic, right? All of us, and we, we had more of a reliance in online learning. I think people became more familiar with it. Some liked it more, some liked it less, but everyone realized that it kept everybody engaged in uh, higher education and their academic work, allowed people to do what we're doing now, right? Uh, from a distance, be able to, to talk and to, to learn and that you can do that as well as the in-person uh, modality if you work hard enough at it by providing them, you know, as we did, predictive analytics, uh, an advising model within our LMS called Real Compass, uh, peer mentors, all of the things that the Gates funding allowed us to experiment with to say, you know, how can you, and they gave us these tremendous goals like increase your completion rates by 50% over five years. Can you do that with all of these new tools and ways in which you can uh, serve students? And we said, yeah, absolutely. Because we learned so much from every experience that you give us. And so in that partnership, as, and as you were talking about before, it takes partners to do the work. The Lumina Foundation supported mm -hmm. us as well and some, you know, and giving us a lot of attention, especially with the work that we were doing with adult students and focused on us when they came to Arizona. And uh, Jamie Marisotis was always very um, complimentary about the work that we were doing. And we were part of their President's Lab innovation model. And uh, with governors, uh, Western Governors University and myself, just to give you a sense of the kinds of experiences I had, um, I was able to brief Melinda Gates in uh, Seattle with uh, a small group of people. And then, you know, with uh, uh, the other Western Governors University and some of the other different online models or higher ed models, uh, you know, present to the governors of the country in, uh, in the round, so to speak, at their governor's uh, annual governor's conference, which was an interesting experience to go to the White House um, to talk about the work that we were doing. Um, and uh, to do a lot of that uh, kind of work around the country to expose the model that we had so that people could learn from it. So it was just a really interesting experience because we had students from every um, state in the union coming to Rio Salado College. As you said, it was the largest online college uh, or community college in, in America and to date, um, still is as a single entity, not as a system, but as a single college. And then um, when I left, by the time I left, we, we built Rio National to serve uh, the whole country relative to um, scaling their work. And then beginning, the, the new thing is to really work with employers to get people at work more involved in education. So a lot of people, uh, Rio Salado was always really good in our workforce programs too, over half of all of the certificates and occupational degrees that were earned in the Maricopa District. You know, the Maricopa District is big, over 200,000 students uh, attend there, are 10 colleges in the system. Uh, those uh, degrees and certifications and credentials came from Rio Salado alone. So we did a lot of credit for training, work with uh, about 27 employers uh, throughout uh, the Phoenix metro area, and, and they still do that work. And so there, we found early on, there's so many undereducated, uh, underskilled workers in the workplace, millions of them. 
adult students that that need that attention. So in online, you know, with major employers, you're seeing that with ASU serving, you know, Starbucks and Uber employees and others. Um, and I know Rio has some partnerships now that they ex have extended out to major employers as well and to cities, et cetera, to, uh, to give them, um, you know, special programs for their employees for those purposes. And then at the same time, you know, scale to transfer programs with other universities that are online. And so the, the neat thing about online is it gives you an amazing amount of flexibility to do, to reach lots of people in lots of places. Um, and we had that asynchronous format. We had our homegrown LMS system called Real Learn that allowed, allowed us to adapt the system uh, when we wanted to do that to serve students better. So I'll stop there, but uh, oh, you I, can tell in my voice how excited I am about talking about it. And I've been away from the institution for almost four years now, but it was a, a tremendous place to be. And so when I left the institution, I told them, I'll watch you from afar and uh, be amazed, continue to be amazed at the work that you're doing, because that's it, just the kind of place it is. And that's what caught me by surprise is, you know, when I talk to other, well, first, I, I guess my question would be, did you get any pushback from other college presidents or chancellors? Because- in the world that I'm kind of used to, sometimes um, uh, it's not they look at the data to decide what's right. They look at their own opinion and, and, they, and they're trying to fit their university or their college and the student has to fit how that works instead of trying to figure out the needs of the students. Now, I, I know everything's getting better. You know, I, I think I always hate to say this. I think COVID kind of helped that a little bit with us proving that we could do online and trying to meet more of the uh, needs of the students and just like online advising and all those other things. But there's still a, there's still a group out there that uh, doesn't think that. So I was wondering as you've gone, as you were going through this, was anybody coming, coming up going, this is not, this is not good rigor. This is not good for the student. This, I mean, did you get any pushback from any of the colleges or universities? Absolutely. Uh, we got pushed back because uh, we were taking, uh, many of them would say, you're taking our students too. And uh, as a result of that, maybe you're not as, they're not getting as good of an experience as they could here in an in-person environment. So, you know, I think a lot of it has changed uh, since then, you know, because a lot of the traditional faculty that were there were used to doing things uh, the traditional way. Uh, many of the younger faculty have come along and are, are open-minded and even the traditional faculty, a lot of them have become more open-minded about online. And as they begin to work within it, offer, you know, especially during this pandemic, I know more people got experience just because they were forced to do it right. because uh, to be able to reach your students, they thought, wow, maybe there's something to this. And so, you know, we're never going back to what we were before where that kind of criticism happened because I think everybody experienced the fact that, you can make it better as, as good as you want it to relative to the tools that you have available uh, for students to do that. And that it's only one modality. What people always forget is that it doesn't have to be the single only thing you offer in terms of you know, higher education. It, it's only one modality of many, but it's an important one to give people flexibility and, um, you know, the ability to get an affordable education because you can do it cheaper, uh, not, you know, amazingly cheaper doing it online as you scale and you get more students, you certainly can do that. But um, 
it's expensive, but at the same time, as you scale it, it gets more affordable and more efficient. And so it's just got lots of advantages. And I think that uh, earlier on, even before I came, I'm told that getting the faculty to even get on the computer to think about offering online was tough. And then, then as they grew their population and found how many people actually appreciated it, it even changed them too. And so Dr. Linda Thor, who was the president who did that early work, um, certainly deserves credit for the vision to do that. But once we were off and running, certainly the university community in terms of transfer credit, um, you know, other universities, this is an online institution purely, you know, our accreditors. I remember the first accreditation I went through, Dave, uh, after the first day, uh, someone who wasn't as the chair of the group that wasn't as familiar with online education said, what kind of a place are you running here? <laughs> was the first question. And I was the, a, you know, a relatively new president and thought, oh my gosh, it hasn't gone that awry so soon, <laughs> has it? And then finally, when they find, or she talked to our faculty and they had all this data and all this research relative to why they do what they do, she was thoroughly impressed. And by the end, they were all taking notes. They wanted to take home to talk about this amazing college. So, you know, people were, uh, are always different when they are open to understanding why it's an important, uh, you know, one important way of, of delivering higher education in a modality of many that uh, makes a difference for students. Yeah. Well, what's some of the biggest uh, challenges right now for community colleges in Arizona? Switching subjects well, on you. <laughs> well, I think it's really, uh, you know, my, my new role, relatively new, it's been almost uh, two years now, it will be in uh, April, um, is this sense that, you know, there are a lot of people who have fallen out of the system. I mean, if you look at our enrollments uh, that I have in front of me between, you know, 2010 to 2020, we went from 384,000 headcount in the state to 287,000. So we lost almost, you know, and we've got less than that now in 2021. So, you know, you're looking at about 100,000 student drop there. Interesting thing though, is uh, when you're looking at full-time student equivalency, we didn't drop by as much, maybe 20, 20% or something like that. And, um, and that means that we just had less students doing more work um, and completing their work and completing uh, their credits in college. But we did lose uh, the ability to serve a lot of students. And so, um, you know, most of our students, over 70% are attend um, part-time, um, even more than that. It's over, exceeds 80%, I should say. And, um, you know, so we know that uh, many of them were either first-line workers or they're, you know, they're toughing it out in this economy that's been uh, tough for them and their families. And uh, so our challenge is getting them back. And we worry about the, the equity in higher education, you know, this, the, the fact that you know, we, they're not going to achieve at the same levels uh, right away when they come back because they haven't been in college for a while. And they're going to have to get reoriented to it. So uh, we have to help them to do that. We, we know that we need to do these shorter term workforce programs because the economy is so hard on folks and that we want them to have sustainable wages while they're getting a college education and engaging in lifelong learning. So we're having to adapt 
our programming uh, differently to ensure that we do give them those opportunities. So we have partnerships with Google IT uh, certifications, you know, for those certifications as well as AWS now, um, and some other partnerships that we've engaged in with companies to ensure that we can deliver these shorter term programs at scale uh, to serve more people so they can have more opportunities sooner. Um, and so we worry about them a lot, uh, especially male students. Uh, we know that we're losing them at even uh, greater proportion. Um, less of them are choosing college. Uh, the uh, Arizona Board of Regents came out with a report that said that less than 50% of high school graduates are even choosing college at all. Mm. <laughs> and so the traditional college age student is dwindling. And then, so what we're starting to see now is this greater interest in serving adult students, both on the university side, as well as even the K-12 side now. Uh, last year, the uh, community colleges were given the authority to do four-year baccalaureate degrees in workforce development areas. It's limited, but certainly uh, we join, I think, 22 other states in being able to do that. Well, I think now some of the CTEDs, the career technical and uh, education districts, uh, there are a few of them in the state, but they're rather large. They now proposed a bill recently uh, for this upcoming session to be able to allow community college uh, associate degrees uh, in workforce areas. And I don't even think that they have the authority to do it, you know? I don't know that they can get accredited for that. So that's so far out of uh, the, the traditional model. And then we had Goodwill Industries that's interested in uh, providing adult students with uh, more traditional diploma opportunities. But in order to do that, they would need to seek legislation to allow them to get K-12 funding for that purpose, which is much higher on a per student basis than what we received to educate those same students to give them GED opportunities. So we're starting to see this in the universities are starting to offer many more certificate type uh, opportunities, shorter term programs, just like community colleges. In the workforce area, which uh, happened to be our uh, traditional mission, and so we're starting to see the uh, this ground of higher ed within Arizona. Anyway, and I know it's happening throughout the country. The lines are are getting blurred uh, more so than they used to be, and so where that's going to end up, we're not sure. Um, but what we do hope is that um, as a result of it, more people will be served in quality programs. And that um, you know we'll be able to partner and uh, utilize resources, uh, you know, leverage them more, much better, uh, so that we can create opportunities to do that. Um, but also to have those who are best qualified um, to provide those opportunities um, as well um, be first in line to do it. So. We'll have to see where all, all that ends up, but it is certainly interesting to see, um, you know, what's happening relative to the landscape of higher ed and how it's changing and how traditional age students are starting to um, dwindle in some communities. Certainly in Arizona, we have lesser uh, that are expected to come up the traditional uh, student route. And so now the extension into the adult student areas is uh, driving more people into um you know, what we normally do, but certainly there's uh, certainly room for more people to serve more people uh, that need to be served in those areas as well. So we'll, we'll just have to see how well we can all do that together. So how do you if, see if that's even possible? 
Yeah. <laughs> how do you, now, I how don't do you... want to say that we're giving up our ground yet, but as I said before, I think it's important to have the put every, every community should have its best, best foot forward. We've been doing working with adult students and uh, offering an associate's degree to our community for uh, you know about f- over 50 years now. So we think we're the best qualified to do that work. Correct. And should Correct. be doing it. So we want to make sure that you know that that is um people understand that that's important. Yeah. Well, that's the mission of two-year schools. You know what? You're a hands-on yeah. school. Certificates and associates are your lifeline. So yeah, I, right. I can see that. I never, that's an interesting. So how do you see higher ed evolving over the next five to 10 years? If you had a little crystal ball for me, where do you think it's going to go? Well, I think that uh, we're going to be pushed by the corporations more who are taking things into their own hands, yeah. you know, to develop their own workforce programs for their own uh, workforce needs and then involving us as uh, stakeholders. But I'm not sure how long that's going to continue to happen, hopefully for a long period of time. Hopefully we can continue to do this in partnership. But as they have greater demands uh, for their workforce, um, if they can't get it from us, they're going to get it. They're either going to do it themselves or they're going to contract to get it from somewhere. And um, I hope that's with us in the community college community, as well as our higher ed system and K-12 system in our country. But, um, you know, I think that those lines are getting blurred too. And I, uh, you know, I just think that we need to uh, be smart enough to know that we are better together than separate. And even though maybe we're going a little slower than they are, they can learn a lot from us in terms of what's important in terms of how to deliver higher education and they can help us to do it better and faster and scale. And that, um, so I, I think more of that's going to happen, more focus on the adult student, more focus on employer um, needs relative to pipelines of students moving uh, within, you know, their sectors of, uh, you know, whether it's uh, insurance, whether it's construction, whether whatever, there's great needs that there, there are a lot of uh, gaps that need to be filled. Uh, and it's training that makes all the difference and uh, more education certifications uh, for companies and uh, for workers. And so we're all going to have to be more adept at meeting those needs for the people that we're serving because, you know, the workforce is changing. Uh, higher ed environment around us is changing. And just, you know, going back to the real model of, you know, making it, you know, having everything you do focus on the student, what they need rather than the institution, and then make all of those adaptations that work for them be the priority rather than, than it not be. And do that in partnership with those who have the dollars and uh, the will and the need uh, to be able to scale those and to make them available to as many people as possible so that all of us can really experience the American dream, right? And yeah. uh, be successful and, and our economies can be successful and we can all be better off. That's a, that's a good point, Chris. Um, you know, when I look at your history, you know, you're, you're, as an academic leader, I guess I need to ask you this is, what's some of the biggest lessons you've learned over your entire career that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I think more than anything else, I spent a lot of time in the policy realm and a lot of time in the higher ed realm. And one of the things that I learned most was that 
uh, politics is sometimes timing. <laughs> I first fought hard for the uh, four year, the two year, well, it's the baccalaureate degree for the community college in offering it in 1992 and 1996. And we got it all the way to the governor's office. And then uh, ultimately it was uh, vetoed. And uh, But what, one of the things we got out of it was articulation and transfer. Hmm. Um, the approach chair who wanted uh, the baccalaureate authority for community colleges said, well, then you've got to get better at articulation. And so she said, uh, we'll take 3% of your money away, universities and community colleges, if you don't make progress on this task force that I'm establishing on uh, getting these pathways, these transfer pathways together. And today Arizona has one of the best transfer articulation pathway programs in the country as a result of our work in the baccalaureate area. It certainly wasn't the ultimate original goal, but it, it, this was kind of the fallback. And my chancellor always knew that. He said, you know, the consolation prize is improved articulation and transfer. And when you talk about models like Rio and, you know, giving students more options, um, you know, you want their credit to count, right? Every, every class they take, you don't want them to fall behind. So that's, that's really important. So lo and behold, last year, <laughs> or actually this session in 2021, last later session, finally the baccalaureate authority came for community colleges. And I had little to do with it. But all of us in setting that groundwork early on had some contribution to it. And so politics sometimes is about timing. It, yeah. it, may, it may still be a good idea. It just may not be the right time for that idea. So that means you don't, you don't need to always give up. <laughs> sometimes it just needs time uh, uh, for it to, to move forward. And we knew that online education would grow over time and that it Ultimately, it would be accepted. As a matter of fact, when uh, I had Bill Gates next to me and he told me he was going to ASU and I, I said, make sure you tell the ASU folks, welcome to the party. It's taken a while for them to join us in the online world. And they, we all had a good laugh. But, you know, they've taken online and, and have made it su such a great model for the country, too. And uh, what they learned from us and what they learned from others and what they learned from themselves. So kudos to them. Because I think that's what it's all about. Everybody um, knowing when it's the right time or even when you think it's the right time and it's not and you believe in it strong enough because you see the results that it's getting, stick with it. Be persistent. Have tenacity to know that ultimately someday it will prevail because it's the right thing to do. So good. Well, I have, I have one more question for you. Uh, do you have any favorite books on leadership? that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I tend to go back to uh, some of the ones that people have heard about before, have read a lot about, but I love Stephen Covey's, uh, you know, seven habits of highly effective mm. people always have. I've tried to live by those simplified seven um, recommendations on, you know, how to, to really discipline, um, you know, yourself uh, in leadership. And my favorite is uh, begin with the end in mind. When people ask me, well, how, do you, how did you get where you are uh, in, in your life? And how are you continuing to plan in your life? So I always think about that. How, how do I want to be remembered? What, what do I want to be most proud of? What do I want my kids and my family to be most proud of? And then work back from there. Because I think um, that's really important. Um, and then you find out 
you know, how to prioritize your life <laughs> and what's really important. And so that's just an example. You know, there, there were seven of them, of course, and, you know, sharpening the saw, of course, is important and, you know, making sure that you're uh, prepared for leadership. One of the things people asked me when I was uh, the candidate for the presidency of Rio Salada was, are you ready? I'll never forget that. Are you ready? And, you know, I could honestly say I had prepared myself well because I had planned for it. I said, you absolutely, I'm ready for this job. I want it so bad. Uh, and I, and uh, I'm so excited about this opportunity. And if you can't say that about something, then you're not ready usually, sure. or you don't have the confidence to do it. So be ready. And one of the, the ways in which you do that is to have, uh, you know, these, uh, these greater leaders, uh, you know, in terms of thought, like uh, thought leadership, like uh, Stephen Covey and and others who have um, some real, you know, good sage advice about how to do things. And then get your own mentor. I remember when I was making the transition from retiring uh, from a 40-year career in Arizona to this new uh, life, you know, as this executive director of uh, association, but doing it out of uh, the consulting work that I do. Uh, the executive coach said, do a matrix. Uh, what does Chris finally want to do in his life? What is, who does he want to work for? Who does, you know, Chris, what kind of a life does Chris want to uh, have uh, more balance, etc." So, you know, every phase of your life sometimes requires a different kind of planning, but it still requires a plan mm -hmm. and uh, other people that can give you some sage advice along the way and uh, then you can figure these things out. But uh, I'm at a place now where I, I think I have a lot more balance in my life, um, but able to contribute a lot of uh, uh, leadership thought and experience and some wisdom uh, in working with the other CEOs that I'm working with to uh, carry out the mission of community colleges in Arizona and continue on with that legacy work that I set out to do. But now in a larger scale, when I look at the whole state rather than one college or or one district. So it's, it's perfect for me. Well, that's not, that's a nice way to end our conversation today. Chris, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. So did I. Thank you for having me, Dave. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.